Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our Erev Shabbat broadcast, Erev Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that our service is going to be a blessing to you. As you all know, or maybe you don't, we are, this Sabbath, we're in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, we kept the Passover earlier, and now we have the seven days of unleavened bread, and I hope that you're all enjoying your matzah. Uh, one of the things that we've uh, always said about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we always say that there's no regular day during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because if you eat this matzah, it will plug you up. And so you've got to drink a lot of water with it. And, of course, the other very traditional prayer of Thanksgiving during the Feast of Unleavened Bread is thank God for potatoes. And because uh, you're going to be eating a lot more potatoes you know, uh, during this week. But in any case, I, I hope that you're enjoying the holiday and we're glad to have you with us. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements. Since we have now begun uh, the Levitical cycle of the appointed times of the Lord, I want to remind everybody that, the, the, uh, that Moses was told that this month of Nisan and keeping the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits that comes with it, that this is the head of months, that we are to take specific note of the counting of the months, uh, not the years, the counting of the months, because the appointed times come at certain months. Uh, and this is just the beginning of the counting of and the keeping of the appointed times. And we'll start talking about next week. We'll start talking about counting the Omer leading to Feast of Weeks. And let me just encourage you all that we are planning on having a Feast of Weeks, a Shavuot conference here. It falls on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, here in Norman, we have a conference center. We're inviting people to come in. And we've uh, started this for about two years ago, having a wonderful time inviting in speakers and music and worship. And we make the whole weekend uh, to it to where we come to the day of proclamation so i want to invite you to come and be a part of that uh, if you'd like to register for that you go to your internet go to shavuot event.com shavuot is s-h-a-v-u-o-t yeah event all one word dot com and you can see what we have planned and that's how you sign up to be a part of it and obviously, as we go through the summer, we're going to come to the fall holidays and uh, Tabernacles, Yom Kippur, and um, Sukkot Tabernacles. If, and we hold a, a national Tabernacles event. If you want to be a part of that, that's tabernaclesevent.com. I do recommend if you've got an RV or a camper that you want to come, register quickly because spaces fill up fast uh, for that. And uh, we'll look forward to joining with you on the other uh, appointed times of the Lord for this year. Amen? All right, so let's uh, move to Kiddush, and we'll get our service underway. Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now, Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, Borei pri ha'gafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. Now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai Eloheinu melech haolam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us wives of Proverbs. And Lord, I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, strengthen her, encourage her as she sees about the ways of our household, even when it is still dark. And Father, I thank you for the blessing that she is when she teaches and educates our children. Father, I thank you for what she does for our home, our household, our household, and the blessing that she is to me. And I confess to her that I love her. And so, Father, I pray that you would just um, fill your wisdom, put your wisdom within her, Father, as she teaches the kids and as she uh, speaks kindness and takes care of our household. And, Father, we also pray a special blessing upon the widows and orphans, those without a husband and father at this time. So we thank you, Father, for the blessing. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Now, if we'd all bless our sons.
the Lord protect and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness, so hear our Sabbath prayer. Now let's bless our daughters. you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance and grant you peace. May you be like Ruth and like Esther. May the Lord with you ever be. May he bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. May God bless you and grant you long life. May God make you good mothers and wives. May he bring you a husband who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness, so hear our Sabbath prayer. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Time for the Barhu. Barhu et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vahen. Blessed be the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Michamocha. Michamocha Baelim Adonai. Michamocha. Nedar Bakodesh Nohora Tehilot Ose Fele Ose Fele Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord. And now, for the blessing of our Messiah. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Et HaDerech Yeshua, B'Mashiach Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the way of salvation in the Messiah Yeshua. Veshamru, Veshamru Vene Yisrael Et HaShabbat, Ledorotam Berit Olam, Beini Uvein Bnei Yisrael, Othi Leolam, Ki Sheshet Yamim Asa Adonai, Et Hashemaim Ve'et Aretz, 
Uvayom Hashvi'i Shavat Vainafash. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and rested. And now if you can all please face east with me for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Leolam Vayet Yeshua HaMashiach Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of His glorious kingdom forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. And now for the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nafshecha u'v'chol me'odecha. Ve'hayu ha'dvarim ha'ele asher nochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. ושיננתם לבניך, ודיברת בם בשבתך בביתך, ובלכתך בדרך, ובשכבך ובקומך, וקשרתם לאות על ידיך, והיו לטוטפות בין עיניך. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your arm, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, to worship you, to praise your name, for you are holy, Father. We invite you to come and join us in our midst, Father, as we lift your name high.
And Chag Sameach to you. I hope you're having a wonderful Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, this is the Torah portion in which we take a break from our red, regularly scheduled Torah portion. And we talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we have a special passage that we traditionally teach on this Sabbath that we call Pesach Shabbat. And it is from Exodus chapter 33, beginning at verse 12. So if you want to open your scripture there, and I sense we are still teaching from the Torah, I will also, as always, do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch HaTadunai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachabanu Mikol HaAmim Venetan Lanu Et Torato Baruch HaTadunai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. As I said, we are in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes uh, our weekly uh, Sabbath falls kind of anywhere in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For this year, um, it's interesting that our Pesach Shabbat falls very late in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As we're almost coming to an end, coming to a close of our feast... So one of the times, sometimes when we come to this Sabbath, we talk about Passover, we talk about the Seder, we talk about cleaning out the leaven. Well, since this year, we're kind of all past that. Everybody will have kept their Passover Seders, uh, have kept their Seders uh, about a week before now. Um, I want to take the opportunity to talk about why this passage, Exodus chapter 33, why I believe that this is given to us as our traditional portion for this week. And also, as we are coming to the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I'd like to maybe set us on the course toward what do we do after? What do we do after the feast? What do we do as we're now in the days of the counting of the Omer and leading toward Shavuot? What should be the things that we focus on? You see, here in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we attempt to eat only unleavened bread. We've cast all the things, the, the unleavened bread, out of our house. We did all the cleaning. We did our, our level best to get rid of the leaven so that we had no leaven in our house. We do it spiritually as well so that we have no leaven, no sin in our hearts, no malice against one another. And that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread should mean to us. That we're clean those things out, that we don't just go back to uh, the same, that we're not just the same as we were before after the feast. We should be changed. We should understand that we have now dwelt with the Lord, had a feast with the Lord, and that we now have a new, a new lease on who we are with the Father. That we affirm the covenant, and it's amazing when we talk about the Passover. We talk about the covenant that God made through Moses and the children of Israel, and the covenant, the new covenant, or renewed covenant, that Yeshua did for us at the Last Supper and at His sacrifice. We should be changed. We should be different. The problem is that sometimes we fall into old habits. Sometimes that we... Um, it's almost like that leaven is still there, still in our hearts. Our passage that's traditionally taught here is Exodus chapter 33. Now this is when we learn the attributes of mercy of God. And this falls in our story after the children of Israel had made the sin of the golden calf. They made a golden calf. They worshipped it. All the ones that worshipped to the golden calf, they died. But then God is speaking to Moses and he says, I'm not going to go with this generation into the promised land. You go, Moses. You can take them, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses pleads with God and pleads for mercy that the Lord would still be with them and still 
go with them into the promised land. And then God reveals the attributes of mercy. And then as the passage continues on through uh, chapter 34, we do have the reaffirmation of the covenant. And we have these mentions of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the pilgrimage feasts, and so there is a reference back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which many people say that's why this passage is chosen for this week. However, the thing that I want to point out with the situation that Moses finds himself in in our story is this, is that there has been a great sin in the community. There's been a great sin amongst Israel. And that the Lord was ready to cut them off from, from his people, cut them off from this entire generation to not go into the promised land because they've committed a great sin. It actually ties back to the original commandment having to do with Passover. That we are commanded to take the leaven out of our homes, that if anyone eats anything leavened or if there's anything that is leavened in your home, that you will be cut off from among your people. Pretty harsh words for someone who's trying to do their best to clean out their kitchen, clean out their homes, and that they're not to be any leaven. If any leaven is found in your home, then you'll be cut off from among your people. Having done this for a great number of years, I've grown up in this walk of life in, in keeping Torah and keeping Passover for a great number of years. I personally cannot remember a time or a year that we went through the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then later discovered that there was something that we intended and wanted to have removed from our home, but didn't. We missed it. We forgot it. Even if we got all those things, there were still always some of those things that you found in your cupboard or your cabinet that you questioned whether it should be taken out during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I'm sure this is the testimony of many people, you, you yourself. Have you ever gone an entire Feast of Unleavened Bread and then you feel like you definitely got all the leaven? Or did you find something? Did you find, did you open up the drawer to open up the cabinets? And, and it, it could be all any kind of thing that, that it could be. It could be that, that stash of Keebler cookies you have in your desk that, you know, you keep from the wife and you just, that's your stash of cookies, whatever. And so you cleaned out everything else, but then you happen to pull open your drawer, you know, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there they are. There's the stash of cookies or candy that might have, you know, flour or something in it that you would consider to be leaven. You would have thrown it out, but if you had remembered it, but you forgot and it was there. How much worse is the fact that maybe you even go through the entire Feast of Unleavened Bread and you have a great feast or whatever, then a couple of uh, weeks later or whatever, then you open up the drawer and then you find the cookies and they're like, wait a minute. Those were there the entire time during the Feast of Unleavened and I didn't even know it. I didn't even remember. How much is that even worse? There's some stories that I have growing up and I remember with my family, we used to... Um, my family, my mom, my dad, we used to follow a more strict list of what we removed from our home. We followed even the list of the kitten yote, which is the legumes. And so we would always take away the beans, the rice, the corn. We would clean out a great number of things. If anything had corn in it, if anything had rice in it, if any, uh, any of the legumes, we'd, we'd clear all of it out. And if anything had wheat in it whatsoever, if, they, if it said wheat in the ingredients, we would take it all out. I remember for years we'd always do that strict list. As time went on, we've sort of changed the list and the things that we consider to be leaven, which that's also what we encourage others to do, is make a list for yourself. Don't just follow some list that you find on the Internet or what somebody says. Make the decision for yourself. What is leaven? Well, back in the good old days, that's, we, we used to consider a lot of things to be leaven, and we'd do our best to clean the entire house. And I remember the one time in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we opened up one cabinet that, where our mixing bowls are, and then we used to keep, my mom used to keep a yellow tub of flour. 
and that's what she where she we kept our flour. Anytime that we made something, it was a yellow Tupperware tub of flour that's about this tall. It was this big thing. You open up the cabinet, and that's all you see. Well, we cleaned out, and like I said, we already cleaned out everything that had wheat in it in our household. And we open up the cabinet, and there's the big giant tub of flour. And we sit there, and we look at that, and we're like... I cannot believe we forgot to take out the tub of flour. We take out everything else with wheat in it, but we left that there. And then we stopped, and it was that situation, actually, that we looked and we thought, well, wait a minute. If this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and there's a way to make unleavened bread, certainly you have to have flour in your house to make unleavened bread. How else would you make a batch of matzah if you didn't have the flour? And so it was that experience that we stopped and thought, and it's all like, why do we have to take out the flour if we're to make more unleavened bread? And these were, this is an example of an experience that, that as we grew, this sort of changed. And this happened over a number of years with then finding something else. But then, but back in that time, when we found that tub of flour, that year we were like, our initial thought was, we were supposed to have taken that out, and we missed it. And it happens, it happens constantly. You'll, you'll, you will always find something that you wish you had taken out. Or you'll find it later and realize it was in your house the whole time. Another story that I want to share that, that this one was even funnier. As we continued to grow in my household, my sister and I, uh, you know, we're teenagers now. We used to when we were little. We did the search for leaven. It's the traditional uh, little ceremony where the kids go with a flashlight and a feather and a spoon and a bag. And you go and, and what it was was my mom would hide pieces of leaven throughout the house. And we'd go and we'd scrape, find it with the flashlight. My dad would hunt with the flashlight and we'd have the ceremony where we, we find it all doing the search for leaven. And then we'd cast it out of the house and my father would burn it there uh, for our Seder. And so that was a little ceremony that we did. Well, as we got older, my sister and I, and we were teenagers, we, we stopped doing the ceremony. We stopped doing it and we, we, because we kind of understood it and it wasn't as fun as it used to. It's kind of an activity for the kids. And uh, then I remember one time that we were cleaning a bookshelf or something like that. And as we were cleaning the bookshelf, we discovered a crouton on the bookshelf. A crouton. Now, croutons don't spoil, luckily for us, so it still looked like a crouton. We could recognize what it was. It wasn't like all filled with mold or anything. But we looked at that and we were like, oh my gosh, that had to have been from the search for leaven. Because my mom would hide things, and once a year I think she put croutons, little garlic butter croutons made with wheat and leavening. And we, those are what were scattered throughout the house. And we looked and we found a crouton sitting on a bookshelf. And we stopped and we laughed and we're like, ha ha, that's from the search for leaven. And then we stopped and thought a little bit more and then we realized we hadn't done the search for leaven in our home for like two years. We hadn't done the search for leaven. So as we sit there in our house and when we realize we've two years, we've kept two feasts of unleavened bread in our home since we did the search for leaven. And there's a crouton sitting on our bookshelf. And we sit there and we look and we're like, wow, that was there the entire time. Now, I'm sharing all of these stories from, from my past, my, my childhood here. And, and this was obviously the household that my father, Monty Judah, was the head of. And that I'm basically standing here admitting that we had leaven in our home during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We didn't clear it all out. We didn't find it all. We didn't there. And so then is that some could look at that and then deserve and say, oh, well, you deserve to be cut off from among your people. That's what the scripture says. <laughs> Luckily for us, we're, we, there's some grace and some mercy to be extended to us. I would hope that if anybody is telling that somebody should be cut, cut off from among their people because they had leaven in their home, then I would ask and make sure that, well, before you cast that stone, are you, have you never found leaven in your home? 
Have you always cleared out the leaven? Let those without the same sin cast the first stone. And I think the story goes that everybody's kind of has a similar experience. I'm sure everybody has some kind of some kind of experience and it could be different for you because like I said, you consider certain things to be leaven that others might not. And so it's personal for you when you find that when you find a crouton on a bookshelf, which would mean nothing for for most people, that to me, my sister and my family, we looked at that and that meant the world to us because we knew where it was from and what it meant. So Everybody goes through this experience. We don't find all 11. We don't understand all of the sins that we commit in our lives. We don't know all of them. We don't, we, we, we don't realize it sometimes. That's exactly why so many of our sacrifices, as we're in the process of our Torah cycle, we're going through the book of Leviticus, and we're talking about sacrifices and offerings that were to be made if you did something unintentionally. This is exactly what I'm talking about this, as this unintentional sins that you're not even aware of, and that's what we learn from this Feast of Unleavened Bread. We do. Now, it's also a fast. It's also that we should look, and this is the thing that I've done, my heart has been to teach about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is that as we abstain from a certain food, such as leavened bread, we should at all times still be looking for helping those that are less fortunate, taking our bread and sharing it with those that are hungry. I always like to read Isaiah 58, which is talking about the fasting of what is an acceptable fast before the Lord. And if we're going to have that acceptable uh, time that we're abstaining from a type of food, we should be focusing on giving and sharing our bread with those who are hungry, helping those in need, or loosening the bonds and the yokes of bondage that somebody is under. In the same way the children of Israel were released from slavery, we should be doing that as well. And to me, that's the actual teaching of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But as what I want to focus on today is this, is that we serve a God of mercy and of grace. That we all make mistakes, make bad ones. Ones that are deserving of being cut off from among the people. However, we serve a God of mercy and of grace. And that's what we learn here in our passage. Let me go ahead and read now some of our scripture here. As Moses is pleading with the Lord here at this time. And let us now look at this in the same way that we have all sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites who just had the sin of the golden calf and the Lord is ready to not walk with them into the promised land. What is this pleading that Moses does here? And let this be an encouragement to us. Verse 12 of Exodus chapter 33. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know... You you have not let me know whom you will send with me. This is the promise of the messenger that God says he will send. And this is the promise of the Messiah. And so that should always hearken to the, the remembrance of the Messiah when Moses is asking about the messenger that God will send. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you. And that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. This is the response that Moses is pleading to the Lord when the Lord said, your people have gone and done this sin. And Moses is calling back to God and saying, no, this people was your people. Yes, they've sinned. Yes, they deserve to be cut off. But remember that they are your people. That's what you said, Lord. 
And he said, my, and God said this, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, not just me, but with us as a people, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people have found grace in your sight except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on those whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, so no, for no man may see me and live. And the, and the Lord said, here is a place by me that you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be when my glory passes by you that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is an amazing thing where God allows Moses to see his glory, this pleading, this relationship that Moses has with the Lord. And that he's been able to plead with him, but Moses never pleading for himself is always pleading for the people. And that's something we should also remember when we're going about all of these things. We take many of these uh, commandments that we do when we come to the feasts, we take them very personally. We take them personal and say we're, we're, we're very individual. And yes, we're to reflect in that way. But we also have to remember that there is the entire congregation of Israel that we have to remember to pray for and remember that these are the people of God. We've done this and taught this recently when it comes to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That the true teaching of the Day of Atonement is that it's the Day of Atonement. It's Yom HaKippurim is actually what it is in the scripture. And it's the atonement that was made for the whole congregation and the whole nation of Israel. Yet we look at it sometimes and we take it very personally and we internalize it. But we have to remember, and one of the things that we have to do in our fellowships and in our communities is remember to take care of the brethren. To remember to pray for one another. Because even though you might have made a mistake and you found leaven in your heart, there are those that also find leaven in their heart as well. Or leaven in their home. And that we have to turn and we have to be an encouragement to one another and remember that God is the God of all the whole nation of Israel. And not just me. It causes us to never exalt ourselves over someone else. It always causes us to remain focused on that we are a company of people. We are his chosen people and we're together. We're in this together with one another. So that one might say, you know, if I, anyone turns to another and says, oh, well, you had, I can't believe you ate that for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's leaven to me. That person is not remembering that we have a whole congregation of Israel that, God has called us from all the nations and that we are all in this together. That it's not about one being exalted over the other. That's God's choice to make. In the end, when he says there will be those who are great in the kingdom and those who are least in the kingdom, that's his choice to make. We don't get to decide that for our brethren or for one another or even for ourselves. If we want to bring ourselves low and we want to then, you know, just, you know, put on sackcloth and ashes and plead and and and, and go into mode of fasting, you know, because of some sin that you feel that you've committed, that's not even your call to make. It's God's call to choose who is the ones who will who will be punished, who are because he knows your heart. 
He knows your heart. And so when, even when somebody wants to play the martyr, that it's not even their call to make. We are all in this together. It's God's judgment at the end that determines who's great and who's least. That's not our job and our, our call to make as we go through all of these holidays. So let us remember the community, the fellowship, and all of us, and not just when we find that sin. As we go into chapter 34, this is when God really reveals the attributes of mercy that God has and the loving kindness that he has in all things for all his people. Chapter 34, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds before the mountain, before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first. And Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai. And the Lord had commanded him and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. One little note, one thing that I've heard when we talk about the second set of tablets that Moses brought. The first set was carved by God. He carved the stone, he wrote on those tablets and then gave them to Moses. And Moses came down and that was a covenant that God made with the children of Israel. He did the work. He, put the, he wrote the ketubah and he gave it to Moses. And the children of Israel... They did not understand what was going on. They obviously had created the golden calf. They were not understanding the covenant that God was truly making with them. Moses broke those tablets. Now to reaffirm the covenant, God asks Moses to cut his own tablets and bring them up. Cut the own, his own tablets. God would still write on them. It was still written with the finger of God. But the initial work had to be done by Moses, by a man. That's something that we need to focus on when it comes to our covenant with the Lord, that we have to sometimes put the effort in to for receive the benefits or to have any value for that covenant. What happens when somebody gives you something? If something gives something to you and it's like, here, this is yours, I have this extra, do you really value it that much? For teenagers that maybe uh, borrow, you know, mom and dad's car, or a, maybe you rent a rental car, and then when you drive it, you drive it hard and you, you, you know, you know, burn it out and have some fun with it because it's not yours. You check that optional insurance and you're not worried about it. But then when something is given to you that you had to work for, or maybe you had to earn the money to buy your own vehicle, then what do you do with that vehicle? Take good care of it. You're cleaning the dashboard with Q-tips and, and armor all, and you're making sure that, that, is, that, that you're taking care of that thing because you had to put some work into it. Think about the covenant made with God. If God's just giving you the covenant, giving you the tablets and saying, here, take this, do we really, our human nature tends to not put the value in it that we should? So what we have to do is we have to put some of the work in as well. And this second set of tablets, Moses himself had to cut Tablets of stone. This was not an easy task without power tools back in ancient times. This was a task that he had to do to put in so that they could, so he could have this covenant. So he had to put the effort in, and so then that created a new sense of value for the covenant that God was making because he himself had to cut the tablets of stone. That's something that we can always remember every time that I see the second set of tablets. That's what I'm reminded of. That we have to do our part and we have to put our work and effort in into the relationship between us and God.
This merciful God that He has a great amount of mercy for us and extends a lot of grace. It's at the point now where if we make a mistake, we have to put the work in to receive it. We have to worship Him. We have to read His Word and know these things. And that, yes, it's abundant and He pours it out upon all people. But when you know the mistakes that you've made, you maybe turn around, you put more value in it, and you have to put the effort in to receive that grace, to receive that mercy and all the blessings of the covenant that God gives to us. So, that's something I like to point out whenever I see that second set of tablets. Verse 5 of chapter 34. Now the Lord descended on the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth in worship. And he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. Even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. This is the famous... uh, Line and then verses where we talk about the attributes of God and that we call it the 13 attributes of God or the 13 attributes of mercy. Where we talk about God being merciful. He's gracious. He's long suffering. He's abounding in goodness. Sometimes that word is called loving kindness and in truth. He keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. What an amazing God that we serve. As we know all the mistakes that we make and all the things that we're deserving of being cut off from among our people because that's what the scripture says and we know the sins that we've committed. We still worship a loving, gracious God who is merciful. Now, that doesn't mean that he forgives all things, that he clears the guilty and wipes away clean. No, he gives you what you deserve and that extends to the third and to the fourth generation. But it says that his blessing of his covenant extends to a thousand generations. What an amazing thing that is. And luckily for us, it's not even been a thousand generations since Abraham or Adam. It has not been that many generations. So all of the blessings of the covenant that God made with our forefathers in ancient times, those blessings still apply to us because we're still in that thousand generation window. But when we sin, I do believe that the mistakes that we made, sometimes they resonate, they linger. Sometimes they linger for a couple of years, just like something that you may have left in your home in the way that the sin lingers and it causes you you, that you still feel like there's still a mistake that I made and you ask for that forgiveness and you plead with the Lord for His grace, for even the mistakes that we made. What a wonderful blessing it is that we serve a loving God, a gracious God, a merciful God, that even when He has said that we're deserving of being cut off from amongst our people, He still has a great amount of grace. And I will say this, I will say this, I do not believe that a leaving a piece of bread or a cookie in your desk drawer or a crouton on a bookshelf is equating to worshiping another God and the sin of the golden calf. So if God was generous and gracious enough to the children of Israel to go with the people, to be with the people after the sin of the golden calf, then I assure you and can with a great amount of confidence encourage you to say that even though you found some leaven in your home, God is still merciful and gracious and forgiving to you. 
That if, if, that's, if that's bogging anybody down at this time during the Feast of Unleavened Bread or that you find something or if you still are yet to find something that was in your home the whole time and you, you know, go and you, you, you plead before the Lord, you can go back to this scripture and you can remember the loving kindness that God has. In fact, in our story, it's amazing when Moses speaks in verse 8, immediately he made haste and bowed his head. God said, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing. And Moses is like, being the smart man that he was, says, alright, I'm going to bow my head. And Lord, if you are forgiving of iniquity and sin, and you are that gracious, then forgive our sin now. It's almost like God gave him an in, and Moses being the brilliant man that he was, and humble as he was to pray for the children of Israel, he immediately bowed his head and prayed and said, Lord, you are merciful, you are merciful. You are gracious. You do share loving kindness and truth. And he prayed back to God what God had said he would do. And God cannot deny the own, his own words that he has said. And that's one of the things that we've always encouraged the brethren. One of the most powerful things you can do is pray back to God what God has already promised. And what he has already said. And he, can, and he will listen to your, your plea and your cry. And he's, for, he's forgiving. When he says this, it says iniquity, transgression, and sin. That kind of covers the whole gamut of mistakes that you, that, that you make. You might say like, oh, well, you know, I, I just sin a little bit. I, I, I make some accidental sins and, and that kind of thing. So I have forgiveness for sin. Okay, that's good. And then it's like, oh, but that, at least I'm not the, at least I'm not the completely lawless, horrible person that goes and, and is in prison and does all these things. Well, because they're just, they just commit complete lawlessness and iniquity. Well, God says here in uh, verse 7 that he forgives iniquity too. And lawlessness and transgression. So once again, we know, we do not have any standing to say that our sin is, is not as bad as somebody else's and so our, God is more loving to us and gracious to us than to someone else. That's not what the scripture says. When you say iniquity, transgression, and sin, that kind of covers the whole gamut of mistakes that one could make. Include from having a sin, worshiping a golden calf to not cleaning out the leaven in your home. It's amazing and wonderful that the Lord has that for us. And then even the, the, the mercy and grace to forgive even those, the, the curses that might fall, befall our children and our children's children to the third and fourth generation that within one's lifetime you can still see the amazing forgiveness. Sometimes when you want something from God or are asking for forgiveness from the Lord, sometimes He doesn't give it to you in the way, in the time frame that you want Him to. Sometimes the Lord doesn't, when the Lord says and promises you something, does He always just immediately give to you what He promised to you in the time frame that you think that He was going to give it to you? No. Sometimes He takes some time. Sometimes His ways and His time frame doesn't match up with yours. In the same way with forgiveness, if you're pleading and begging for forgiveness from the Lord, but then it seems like, you know, He didn't forgive you, He didn't bring that forgiveness because you're still suffering from whatever sin or mistake that you had. He does give a promise that through the third and fourth generation, eventually, over time, the Lord will forgive you of the sin. Hopefully it happens in your lifetime that you can then see that forgiveness fulfilled in your children, in your grandchildren, or maybe your great-grandchildren. But the Lord is still forgiving in that time. Sometimes you just have to wait on the Lord for that timing to take place. 
Now, as we close out this Feast of Unleavened Bread, I hope that we are encouraged to continue to follow after the Lord in the same grace that he, the children of Israel tested him ten times in the wilderness. They would not, they made so many mistakes, they were so spiritually immature, yet he still was with them and he still was forgiving to them even in throughout their generations. So may we be encouraged that the Lord, that that is the God that we serve. That he is forgiving and gracious to us beyond even the mistakes that we make. Now, as we come out of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and as we go back to our daily routine, and we come out of, like, you know, not eating any bread, and then usually we go and throw a big pizza party and eat as much, you know, leavened bread as we can, may I encourage you that you take the opportunity to look at that and say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't just immediately go back into the same ways and the mistakes that we make before. Maybe we shouldn't just keep, just go right back into it as if nothing has changed. Now, we're given a sign, we're given something to do after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We go into the counting of the Omer. It's a countdown and an anticipation of another feast that the Lord is calling us to. That's the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Shavuot. And that is actually the perfect way for us to continue to day by day remember and let the lessons that we learn in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, let them linger on beyond that feast. Each day we are told to count the omer. Well, what's the omer? The omer is, was a measurement of grain that was basically a daily portion of grain. When the children of Israel gathered manna in the wilderness, they were told each person was to gather an omer of grain for them to eat for their day. The omer represents the daily provision of God. So as we go into and through the counting of the Omer, as we approach Shavuot, let it linger that the Lord is with us and forgiving and gracious to us day by day. When we pray and say, give us this day our daily bread, that's what the counting of the Omer is to represent. And so we have this measurement of this grain that we are to count. And Now spiritually, we have to do this in today's uh, today's world and society because we don't all have sheaves of barley and we don't really count that. But what we should do is we should focus on the as we come out of the Feast of Unleavened Bread being encouraged day by day and remembering who we serve and that He meets our needs and He satisfies us and He blesses us with all of those things and remembering that our daily provision comes from Him. And we need to let that linger on into the summer, into Shavuot, and as we go to another appointed time before the Lord, where we get to learn new mercies and new things that the Lord gives to us through all of His appointed times. So I pray that we would let that linger on, and that we would let that spiritual encouragement and instruction linger as we go and leave the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then never remember that it is our duty to teach those around us, to teach our children of all of these mercies and these things. That that's what the Passover is to remember so that we memorialize the salvation and redemption that God gives to us and to teach others. Remember, those that are great in the kingdom of heaven are the ones who not only keep the word and the instruction and the commandments, but also teach it. So I encourage that we remember and look for all those opportunities to share our hearts, our testimonies, and all of the things that the Lord has done with us. Share it with one another so that we hopefully one day, it's not our call to make, but hopefully the Lord will look down in kindness upon us, say, well done, my good and faithful servant, and that we shall be the ones who are great in the kingdom of heaven. What a blessing that would be. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction. We thank you, Lord, for this uh, intermission, this break, Lord, from the regular Torah cycle that we can 
meet with you, that we can take one of these appointed times, Lord, and that we can focus on your instruction for us and what you are trying to teach us through that feast. So, Father, I pray that you would bless us, encourage us, and strengthen us, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness that you pour out upon all of mankind, Lord. We need it, Lord, because we all have sinned, Lord, all the mistakes that we make. But you are forgiving and you are gracious, and we pray that we turn all of our sins over to you, that you you take those burdens from us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness and your, and your mercies upon us. So we bless you on this Sabbath day. We give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise in all things, Lord. And may we remember to praise you day by day, each day, as we continue to take every new breath and every new day that we have an opportunity to worship you and love you and teach our children. So, Father, we bless you and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adunai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet V'chai Elam Nata Betokeinu Baruch Adunai Nonten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, to chapter 13. Hold your finger there for a moment. Um, this Shabbat, if you look on the traditional teaching calendar, is called Shabbat Pesach. We just had Passover. We're in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there is the, the reading for this is, is a series of readings in the Torah and the Prophets. And there isn't so much a specified reading in the New Testament because there's multiple places where the Passover is addressed, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is addressed. But I've selected one uh, that I think is special and specifically comprehensive to the topic that we have for this Sabbath. Um, let me just step back for a moment by way of introduction and say there is, when, it, when we talk about Passover, there is a historical Passover. This is when Moses was actually with the children of Israel. They were in Egypt. It was the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn that hit them, and the protection of the firstborn. Not all of Israel. Not all of the firstborn of Israel. It was the requirement that Moses gave to us of the slaying of a lamb and putting the blood of that lamb on the lintel and the doorpost and to then cook that lamb with fire and that was the meal. That was the main part of the dish of them eating what is called the Passover Seder. And that they ate this, uh, you know, with their loins girded, their sandals on their feet, their staff is in their hand, like because we're getting ready to leave. And that's the historical um, Passover. The God at the same time that was preparing them also said there's going to be a memorial Passover that's going to be conducted every year after on that anniversary, on the 14th of Nisan. This is the month of Nisan, and many of us kept the Passover on the 14th. The vast majority of people keep it on the 15th. And let me tell you why they do that, which is the first day of unleavened bread and a high Sabbath. It's because this is one of the things that was the big difference between the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
the Pharisees advocated you eat the Passover on the 15th, not the 14th. And the Sadducees, no, you eat it on the 14th, not the 15th. And this has been a controversy uh, for a long, long time. This controversy is still going on to this day in the Messianic movement. They cannot quite figure out, is it supposed to be the evening of the 14th or the evening of the 15th that we eat the Passover? I advocate the evening of the 14th. And I do so based on a very clear instruction from Moses. And secondly, the New Testament and the Messiah confirms it. Because the day he was crucified, they had to get him off the cross and bury him because the very next day was a high Sabbath, which means it was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the 15th of Nisan. So he obviously, the night before, ate it on the eve of the 14th. And for us as Messianics, I believe it's very important that not only that we keep the commandment uh, to observe the, the Passover, but maybe we should be keeping it the way the Messiah kept it with his disciples. I mean, we advocate he's our Messiah. We want to eat at the table with him. And this is when he used to do it. So for us, um, I think it's, it's more than just an interesting theological question. I think it's pretty important. Now, so we have the historical Passover. Then we have the memorial Passover to be kept, but now we have what we call today. Modern people, how do we keep the Passover today? And the controversy associated with it, and it stuns me that we still have this, the other controversy is, what is the order of the Passover? In other words, when we sit down to have the Passover meal, how do we do it? What do we do first? What do we do second? How do we conclude it? What is the sequence of events or the order of events in keeping the commandment to remember and memorialize it. Now, um, I've heard a lot of different uh, believers who say, well, I'm only going to do three things. I'm going to have, uh, I'm not going to eat lamb. I'm going to eat whatever I want to eat, but I will have bitter herbs and I, and I will have, I will drink the cup and I'll eat matzah. And I'm like, well, you could do that on any day of the week. Why is that going to be a special Passover to you? And there's a kind of a anti-traditional Seder thing with people. I think there's some reasons for that. Number one, they've never been taught the Seder to begin with. And secondly, they don't like to be adults keeping the Passover and suddenly discover, May I, maybe I haven't been keeping it correctly. Maybe I, I need to improve how I do it. Let me... Um, as I get ready to show you the scripture, I want to tell you something that's rather fascinating about the Gospels. The dominant subject in all four Gospels is about the Messiah eating the Passover with his disciples. We are in John chapter 13. We're halfway through the book of John, and from here on out to the end, we, John's going to be sharing with us what did Yeshua teach at the Passover, and that that's the dominant subject all the way to the end of the book. The minimum number of chapters by any gospel is six chapters is dedicated to how the Passover was fulfilled by the Messiah. And that's the Gospel of Mark, the smallest gospel there is. All the other gospels have multiple chapters on this subject. 
And if you step back and you just do a, let's just do a quick literary review of the Gospels, you will discover this is the number one topic in the Gospels. That the number one teaching about the historical Messiah and trying to share is how he kept and fulfilled the Seder of the Passover. And now, are you ready for this one? I'm going to give you another interesting fact. The oldest, most authoritative Jewish literature on how to keep the order, the Seder of the Passover, are the Gospels. All other commentary in the, in the Jewish world about keeping the Seder and so forth is written after the Gospels presented it. And it's traced back to the teachings of Isaiah and Ezekiel. It is Ezekiel who taught the people. Since they weren't in Jerusalem, they were in captivity in Babylon. Oh my gosh, we're going to keep the Passover and we don't have the lamb that we can slay you know, to eat. What are we going to do? You know, they, were in, they, they didn't have lambs. And Ezekiel taught, and this is well understood in the Jewish community, that the substance, the wine we put in the Passover cup represents the lamb. That it represents the blood of the Lamb. I would remind you that Yeshua picked that same cup up and he said, that is the blood of my life. He was saying, I'm the Lamb of God. And we proclaim him to be the Lamb of God when we drink that Passover cup. Now there's a lot of meaning to that. The, uh, the shank bone of the Lamb. Uh, we put that on the Passover Seder plate. That comes from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, probably the most powerful prophecy that Isaiah ever said about the Messiah. He begins chapter 53 with, Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed unto? In the Hebrew, the arm of the Lord is called the Zeroah Adonai. The shank bone on the Passover Seder is called the Zeroah Adonai. And when we eat the Passover, and that's what Isaiah was asking the question, when you eat the Passover, do you understand that that shank bone is about the arm of the Lord, it's about the Messiah? And he goes on in Isaiah 53 to tell us all about the incredible things the Messiah did, like bearing the sins of the world. Um... This chapter, I'm going to read through now, and I'm going to show you some of the other elements that is, that is traditional in the Seder of the um, Passover, and I find it stunning that people don't see the correlation. But if you keep the traditional Seder and you have a good teacher that knows the Messiah, he can point every one of these things out to you. Follow along with me now as I read from John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Yeshua knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during the supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Yeshua knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper 
and laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water out into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, uh, do you wash my feet? And Yeshua answered and said, What I do to you, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Yeshua answered, If you do not wash your feet, you have no part of me. Now for those of you who are familiar with a traditional Seder, one of the very first things we do in the Seder after we have drank the first cup, which is called the cup of sanctification, to make this meal completely different from any other meal that we eat this year. To set this meal up, that this is completely different. There is nothing common about this meal. This is a very special meal. The very first thing that we do is we do a washing. Now, the Jews think... It's a washing of the feet, uh, which is what the priests used to do every time they served in the temple. They would wash their hands and their feet before they would serve in the temple. And it's part of that. It's part of, before you come before the Lord, you wash your hands and your feet. And the Seder is this special meal. We sit to eat it with the Messiah. And, and, and because we are, we, we prepare ourselves to, to be in his presence and do it. Guess what Yeshua did? He took his outer garments off. What, what, what were his outer garments? What, what was he wearing? Traditionally, the outer garment of the leader of the Seder wears a, a plain, simple, white garment called a kittle. Usually there's some embroidery on it. It's, it's made unique. Let me tell you about kittles in the tradition. They are worn by the head of the house when he leads the Passover Seder, and it's his burial garment. When he's buried, he, he dons a, a kittle is put on him. And it's about life and death. And it's considered to be a garment of honor. There's no question at the Seder, who's leading you in the Seder? Who is the teacher at the Seder? Who's the father who's going to be teaching his son about that? And by the way, we have a commandment to teach our sons. And the way we teach them is the way they're supposed to teach their son, is which is the way they're supposed to be to teach their son. Well, I just described tradition. It's not upon you to create a new way to keep the Passover for your son, and then your son's going to create another way to figure out how to keep the Passover. You're supposed to set an order to it so they can be taught. Um, And it's simply tradition. It's part of the commandment. Do it the same way, give the same teachings in the same way. And this was the way it was espoused by the prophets. And guess what Yeshua does? He follows that order. Today, when you eat a Passover, first thing that you do in a traditional Seder is you wash. Now, there's a lot of Messianics, and I favor this. The leader of the Passover takes off his kittle, and they set the place... And I've done this for satyrs in my own home. And I wash all of my guests' feet. Very humbling experience, by the way. 
if you have, anybody ever really does that, washes your feet. It's very humbling. Guess what? Peter was humbled by this. Oh, no, Lord, not, not me. No, no, I, no, I don't want you to wash my feet. And he said, I'm telling you, if you don't let me do this, you're not going to have any part of me. Because it was an incredible teaching. You see, the person who's doing the washing, he's symbolizing that he's a servant and that he's going to serve others. And that's what the Lord came and did for us. He lowered himself to becoming a servant to serve us life and forgiveness. And he had to humble himself. Paul talks about in Philippians, seven different layers that the Messiah humbled himself to come and do the work of redemption. The final level is he gave up his life. He gave it up. Um, and here Yeshua is trying to teach them, I'm going to give up. I'm going to humble myself so that you will be spiritually clean, that you'll be forgiven of your sins, so you'll receive redemption and salvation. Passover is called the Feast of Redemption. And that's what it's about. It's explaining redemption and salvation and how it comes from the Lord for us. The very first thing that he does is one of the very first teachings in the traditional Seder that we have today. But as I said to you, there's a lot of folks that decide we don't want to follow that, quote, Jewish Seder thing. When in truth of fact, it's not Jewish. It's biblical, and this is what the Messiah did. And this is what the Messiah taught. Let me go a little bit further with you here. Um, verse 11. For he knew... Let me, let me back up. Uh, verse 10. Yeshua said to him, He who hath bathed needs only to wash his feet, but, he, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And this is the first hint that things are not all correct. That one of the disciples, even though he's going to do the washing of the feet, is not clean. That he has something else in his heart. Passover is taught to us that you will not do this in an unworthy manner. It's the only holiday that says this. You will not do it in an unworthy manner. Paul says... That if we as believers do this in an unworthy manner, a dishonorable way to the Lord, this is the reason why there are people in our congregation that are sick and dying. That we actually bring death on ourselves um, and our assembly because we fail to honor the Lord and, and act appropriate at keeping the Passover. No other holiday in the appointed times have such a restriction. Well, Yom Kippur, it says, if you don't keep Yom Kippur, you die. Well, okay, I stand corrected on that one. But the Passover has this very specific instruction, and even Paul reiterates this for us specifically in the New Testament. So he goes on to say there's someone who's going to be a betrayer. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. That's the reason why the whole Passover was even instituted as a memorial. That every generation is to know that the Lord delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery and out of the land of Egypt and it was the Passover that actually started the process. As a result of the Passover, they were released from Egypt. And mind you, let me say, again it was the firstborn that got the benefit from this. And there's some very specific reasons for that. All of Israel was essentially saved at the crossing of the Red Sea. That's the picture of salvation. But redemption is specifically defined and pictured for us in the death of the firstborn and the Passover lamb. And there's some very clear distinctions between redemption and salvation. And we find that the prophets continue to teach from what we gain as the principles from Passover. So when we memorialize it, we are specifically talking about the redemption How did God provide redemption for us? How did he pass us from death to life? Thus the term, the Passover. Um, It's not just a mundane name of a mundane holiday. And here he says that Yeshua is specifically the same way Moses said that you are to memorialize this. Yeshua is reiterating, I've done this to be an example for you. Obviously, if it's supposed to be an example for you, we're supposed to do it. You know, with this uh, last weekend, you know, we, we all saw it. Uh, our Christian brethren, our New Covenant Christian brethren, they were keeping Easter. You know, at the same time we were keeping Passover. And their teaching about Easter turns out to be about bunnies and eggs. Our teaching of the Passover is about the Lord's redemption. And so they think the big thing is that he was resurrected. So they want to celebrate the resurrection. But what was the commandment to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah? So where's the teaching of the death and the burial? Oh, that's Good Friday. Oh, really? Who came up with that idea instead of what the scripture says? Well, I can tell you. It was the church fathers. They completely came up with that on their own. You know why they came up with it? They didn't want to do what those Jewish people were doing. It was actually an anti-Semitic thinking. You know which Jews they didn't want to do it with? The believing Jews that believed in the Messiah. They didn't even want to be in fellowship with him. How bizarre is that for you in church history? And of course, as you all know, most of us have never heard this. We have no idea what's the real history of the church. We have no idea of a lot of our teachings, where they really originate from. We all think that everything we're doing today in Christianity, it's exactly where the Messiah did it, and that Messiah came and, and set the church up to do all these things. I can assure you that the Messiah and his disciples never kept Easter and never advocated or taught it. Now, the only, only time you find the word Easter is in the old King James Bible. And by that time, 
through the church fathers, it had become entrenched. So they substituted a word and put in the word Easter in the King James one time. And from that we have all of the teaching and traditions and customs that we have today. But here's the Messiah keeping it and is giving very specific instructions that follow the traditional Seder. Verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Oh my goodness. You could take that quote right there and plug it right beside a traditional Seder. If you know these things and you do them, you will get a blessing. When I began to keep the Passover Seder many years ago, you know what really stunned me? <laughs> I stepped back from having done it and I said, this is the most Christian thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, this will preach on every Sunday. You know, it's just filled with incredible teachings about the Messiah and our faith and primarily about redemption. I was a good Baptist. You know, four Sundays, three of the Sundays are all about get saved and an altar call and the fourth one's about stewardship. So you'll give to the church. That's standard Baptist teaching. Three, three Sundays out of the month, we're trying to get everybody saved. Well, how do we get saved? You've got to be redeemed. We ought to be preaching the Passover. So let's continue. Verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is in the scriptures may, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That's the prophecy that the Messiah would be betrayed. And it's from the sharing of a piece of bread. From which bread represents spiritual things to us? Unleavened bread. Not normal bread. But the commandment to eat unleavened bread is fraught and filled with all kinds of spiritual meanings. Most of us get those little square pieces of matzah. That's the bread of Isaiah 53. It has stripes in it. It has little piercing points into it. And it gets broken. Natural bread is torn. Matzah is broken. And that's the bread of Isaiah 53. So going back to what Isaiah was saying, who has believed our report? Does anyone understand this? What we're doing? And those who keep the Passover and understand the symbols, they see the Messiah in a whole new different way. They see him as foretold by the prophets, and they see him as when he sat and ate with his disciples. Let's continue on. Verse 19, from now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. You see the word he? That's not in the manuscripts. That's been injected by the English translators. Let me repeat to you what he really said. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am do you remember when God got asked by Moses, Whom shall I say has sent me so that the children of Israel could be redeemed out of Egypt? He said, You will tell them that I am that I am. You will tell them I am sent you. He said that as a result of keeping the Passover and listening to his teacher, his teaching, that we will realize 
that the Messiah is connected to the burning bush, is connected to dispatching Moses, and that the original Exodus story and the Passover was all about the Messiah. That he's the Lamb of God, given by God for us. That's pretty powerful. How many times have I heard churchmen talk about the burning bush and God introducing himself as I am, you will tell him I am sent you. How many times did I hear that in my entire Christian experience? Well, for me, my testimony is I never heard it a single time. Even though they're all Christians, they're all promoting Jesus, I never once heard a teacher ever say that he's making reference to the, that he is the God who was in the burning bush. Now, we believe God is eternal. We believe the Messiah is part of God. Here is, here's Messiah saying, yeah, that was me in the burning bush. No, by the way, there's other places where he said, yeah, that was me standing on Mount Sinai talking to you and giving you my commandments. Because in a few moments, he's going to repeat the phrase, if you love me, keep my commandments. By the way, those are the direct and exact words that God said from Mount Sinai. So he's repeating what God has actually verbalized previously as God was manifesting himself. So it goes on to say, verse 21, When Yeshua had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss of to know which one he was speaking. There was reclining at Yeshua's breast one of his disciples. We know that to be John. The writer of this gospel. He was called the beloved a disciple, the beloved apostle, because he was the youngest and he, he was the most affectionate toward the Lord and the Lord was affectionate with him since he was the youngest. Verse 24, then Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, tell us who is it of whom he is speaking. This is Peter going to John and saying, John, you know, you're real close with the Lord. You know, you're right there. Ask him, who is it? Verse 25, he leaning back thus on Yeshua's breast said to him, Lord, who is it? Yeshua therefore answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. You know what he was dipping into? Because this is the part of the Seder that's traditional. When you take a piece of matzah and you dip it in bitter herbs, the sign of who the betrayer was, was when Yeshua handed him that bread, representing him, with bitter herbs. Because the bitterness, it represents slavery in Egypt. We remember the hardness of being in Egypt. And we remember what betrayal does. It's like eating. It's, it's a bitter taste when you, you're being betrayed. And so Yeshua said, I'm going to share this piece of bread. I'm going to give him that piece of bread. I recognize he is the bitterness and he's the betrayer. That's traditional Seder. And the sequence of that has to be done before the supper is eaten. Because he's addressing this before they eat. In a traditional Seder, just before you eat, 
you, you have a ceremonial piece of matzah, you dip it in bitter herbs. And then we also have that other lesson where we take the harosa, you know, the apples and the wine and the honey. We mix that with the matzah, with the bitter herbs, and here's the teaching from the example. It is far better for you to take the sweet things of the Lord in your life to overcome and overpower the bitter things in your life. Let the sweetness of the Lord cover the bitterness of life. And you eat this little sandwich. That's before you have supper. Those are the lessons. Oh my gosh, those are important lessons. Those are profound lessons. I mean, that I'll preach every day how important that is. So he ate of the bitter herbs with, the, with the Judas. And that was the way he indicated to the disciples it will be this one. And as you know, the rest of the story, that very shortly after this, because Yeshua said, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. And so he left the Passover meal. And the other disciples, you know, saw him leave and they said, well, he must have been dispatched by the Messiah to do some sort of business because he was the treasurer of Yeshua's ministry with the disciples. Because when he would receive an offering and he would share with the poor, it was Judas who was the treasurer. By the way, we know he tipped the till that he stole from God. And he's the one that would complain when certain gifts would come in, you know, to honor the Messiah. Oh, I, I don't understand why that was done. We could have, that could have been sold and, and used for the poor. He didn't care about the poor. He just wanted to get his hands on the money. And that's the reason why he sold out the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. He was a thief. He was greedy. That's not a clean heart. That's a corrupt heart. Um, and, and the Passover exposes that. And the whole concept of us removing leaven from our houses before we eat the unleavened bread, that's supposed to, when we're supposed to be doing that self-examination of our heart. Lord, if there's any corrupt thing in me, Help me, remove it from me, so that I'll be pure and unleavened. Paul, keying off of these things, teaches to the Corinthians. He says, do you not understand that the Messiah is our Passover sacrifice for us? That we should keep the feast with no leaven. Now, the reason why I've shared this this week, there may be many of you who decided to follow the Hillel calendar and eat it on the evening of the 15th, which is supposed to be a high Sabbath. Passover was never intended to be a Sabbath. It was the work of God to provide redemption. They didn't treat it as a Sabbath when he ate it. They prepared the lamb, they did and he did certain works on the Passover that led to redemption. Number two, for those of you who think, oh, I don't have to follow that traditional Seder 
I don't have to have a Haggadah. I don't need to teach this in a standard way, the way the Messiah kept it, the way it's traditionally been kept from generation to generation. And I don't need to teach my son that. I would remind you that Yeshua said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That means follow his instructions. And he's given some very specific instructions in the Gospels. In fact, from chapter 14 on, is some of the most profound teaching that Yeshua gave. I'm the vine, you're the branches. The new commandment I give unto you. They were all given in the context of eating a Passover Seder. Most people read and hear those verses. They have no idea they're connected to the Passover. That this was the teaching that he was giving to his disciples at the Passover. I mean, he could have given some of those teachings earlier. and You know, he was traveling around doing miracles and he was giving teachings. He talked to men. How come he didn't teach this stuff out there? No, this was reserved for the redeemed of the Lord. And this was the instruction from God himself. Because you do know as a result of the Messiah doing the work of redemption that we are all the firstborn of God. That he's the firstborn of many brethren. That's the reason why the Passover is significant. It's the feast for the firstborn. And keeping it puts you in a whole different status with the Lord to receive his blessings I'm very concerned since I've been in the messianic movement and my brethren are coming to the Messiah praise the Lord I see lots of new covenant brethren their faith being enriched I see them making the transition they're turning back to the commandments and the blessings of the Lord they're they're returning to the teaching of Moses the original teaching from God And yet, the most powerful and the first appointed time of the Lord that we keep, somehow this thing slides past them, and they miss it. That's how effective that was. (laughs) The, uh, that, that, thank you, Lord. That was a great symbol of, I'm stunned by how, some reason in this generation we can't seem to get it. So my exhortation to you is, I don't care what you did for Passover this year, when you go to keep the next Passover, take it serious. It was provided for us. You know, and it's an incredible gift. And if you learn it, you will not have a problem as a parent teaching the things of the Lord to your children. Just have them keep the Passover with you. They'll get it. And they will eat the word of God. They will drink the, the cup. And, and they will suddenly realize what the Messiah has done for them. And I know the church has a little communion. And they have a little crumb and a little sip thing. They have no idea that it came from Passover. They have no idea. They're drinking the cup after the meal. Like it says that he was drinking his life, his blood, given first. Shabbat shalom.
And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. Come.